y'all. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. Always good to have you here. I hope you're doing really well today. We have a book club episode today. We're hosting a book club discussion with Kathleen Shepard, founder of Tiller Swim, on Let My People Go Surfing, The Education of a Reluctant Businessman by Yvonne Chouinard. Yvonne Chouinard is the founder of Patagonia. And Let My People Go Surfing is a really golden standard handbook in the space of conscious, ethical, planet-forward business. It is an incredibly well-respected guide to how to operate a business with the planet in mind. A lot of people have recommended this book to me. Kathleen said that it had been on her reading list for years. And when I announced this book as our book club pick, I actually had quite a few people in my real life telling me about how they had read it in college or how they were assigned to read it in school in some way or how they had been recommended it by a boss or a mentor. So this was a book that I was really, really excited to read and have a conversation about because it is such a golden standard, especially when it comes to the brand side and the supplier side of conscious consumption, something we talk about a lot here on the pod. I mentioned that we are speaking today with Kathleen Shepard. Kathleen is a longtime ocean lover. She grew up sailing, swimming competitively. She now lives in Southern California. And she is the creator of Tiller, Sustainable Swimwear and Activewear. I came across Tiller Swim probably three years ago, actually just on my Explore page. Really cute swimsuits. And I saw that they were versatile. All the pieces are double-sided, so you can essentially wear two swimsuits with one piece. I loved the brand. I bought a swimsuit. I followed them for a long time. I started following Kathleen. And now I feel like we are very proper internet friends. And that was something we joked about before we started our recording. I feel like we really know each other just because we've been following each other and DMing for some time. And I feel like that's kind of my selfish favorite reason to host book club. I love that it keeps us all accountable reading and having these really interesting conversations. But it allows me to connect with people in the community and people that I'm friends with online and people that I feel have really influenced the way that I think about conscious consumption especially given that it's a space where a lot of my everyday friends don't find themselves very frequently. So it's hard to get into deep dive conversations on specific topics when I am the only one deeply thinking about a lot of these things most of the day. So it is fun. It's fun to find like-minded people. Book club is a great way to engage with the community and to feel a little bit more at home. And the fun thing about book club, if this is your first time here, that If it's a nonfiction book especially, you don't have to read the book to enjoy the conversation. It's a great way to keep ourselves accountable for reading and for keeping up with the industry, but it should also just feel like a casual conversation with some of your friends. So book club is a really fun time. In the sustainable fashion space and in the consumer market in general, Patagonia has really become an excellent example of a brand that is so wildly true to its ethics and its philosophy. Kathleen and I today discuss the nature of repairability. We talk about the financial models of Patagonia that are discussed in the book. We talk about the history of the brand and who it was really made for, creating products with a consumer in mind, and a lot of other fun, interesting business snippets that we picked up from this book. We both agreed that this book was definitely not meant to be read cover to cover. It's a manual, and in the preface of the book, Chouinard mentions that Let My People Go Surfing was originally written as a handbook for Patagonia employees to better understand the brand. And it just 
unexpectedly became this really incredible business book that a lot of people regard quite highly. That being said, if you are looking to pick up this book, I think it's a really, really fabulous collection of information. But again, it's a manual. It's not meant to be read cover to cover. There's some great photos. There's awesome charts and tables. The history is interesting and it's broken up really nicely. So you can go and search for something if you're looking specifically to learn more about financing, let's say, or repairability culture or whatever else it may be. Easy to navigate, easy to read, wildly digestible language, especially for a business book. I don't consider myself a business woman. While this show is certainly a business, I don't see it as clear cut because my product is a podcast. It is audible. It's not a tangible product. So the way that I think about business is very, very different from the way that Yvonne Chouinard and Patagonia think about business. So I was a little bit intimidated. I was like, I don't know if I'm the right reader for this book, but I really got a lot out of it. I feel like I really enjoyed it because it is more generally about the culture of consumer products and shifting industries and what does it mean to really lead with your values, whether you're creating a business or a product or just trying to better understand the industry. That being said, whether or not you consider yourself a business person, I feel like this is an awesome read. Kathleen and I had a lot to discuss. We really enjoyed it. We were able to relate a lot of it to our lives and to the bigger sustainability space. And overall, really, really glad that we read it. I'll leave us there. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to share it with a friend. You can tag me on your Instagram story. You can reach out to me on Twitter or on TikTok or wherever else you like to be on socials. If you found this podcast because you're reading this book for a class, I dare you send the episode to a teacher, send it to a share it in the online forum where you have to discuss things with your classmates. And again, wherever you want to connect with me, all of my links always in the show notes. Please enjoy the conversation on Let My People Go Surfing, The Education of a Reluctant Businessman by Yvonne Chouinard with Kathleen Shepard of Tiller Swim. Kathleen, welcome to Eco Chic. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. (laughs) I'm excited to do book club with you this month because I feel like this book is so well aligned with the work that you do and with Tiller as a brand. And before we even start talking about the book, before we get into our book club, I want to hear a little bit about your Kickstarter campaigns. Yeah. I mentioned to you earlier, I'm so impressed that you have hosted two very successful Kickstarter campaigns to launch Mm -hmm. two branches of the brand. Yeah. I want to know about that. Like, what was the process? Like, how did you manage to raise as much as you did? Mm -hmm. What makes a successful Kickstarter campaign? Yeah. So the first Kickstarter was in 2019. And for people who were following way back then, really was going in blind, like truly had barely an Instagram presence. Like it was really just friends and friends of friends. I mean, I guess to this day, it's a majority that as well, but I knew that I wanted to start the brand. I knew that I needed some money for the inventory, but I also wanted to sort of like test the market. So I toyed around with different crowdfunding options. You know, there's like GoFundMe, there's like iFundWomen, there's a bunch of different ones. But one thing that I liked about Kickstarter, and this was kind of a challenge to me, was that you have to reach your goal to get any of the money. So that was one thing that I was like, okay, well, if I can't raise this first round, it's not the right time. Like people don't want this in the world. I'm not going to just get halfway there. Like I want to raise the full amount and really do this thing. And that's like one of the issues I had with the other crowdfunding platforms was that I could raise, you know, a couple thousand, wouldn't make a dent, wouldn't be able to put in my full order. 
that sort of thing. And then I'm just like holding people's money hostage essentially. So this way it was kind of like no guilt. I could have just like made sure that it was the full amount that I could get these pre-orders in. And then again, like I was saying, it tests the market because I was able to offer all of the product before they were actually e-com sales. It was seeing if people like certain styles, like what colorways people liked, the sizing skews. And that also helped in terms of not overproducing certain styles and sizes, was able to sell through that whole line. And yeah, so we just kind of like jumped into it. Very minimal, like I guess, pre-marketing. Again, it was all like organic Instagram, like talking to my followers, like on my personal page, LinkedIn, reaching out via email. But you asked what makes a successful Kickstarter. And truly, I think it's like the hand-to-hand combat. It's going up to people directly, texting people, like being able to call people up and tell them what we're doing, explain what Kickstarter is, because the majority of the population does not know what Kickstarter is or how it works. And kind of like ask, you know, it's hard to ask people for money. And I found that that was like something that was definitely out of my comfort zone, but had to get past that and just being like, Hey, would love your support. And, you know, like support came from, yeah, obviously pre-ordering or donating, but it also was like, if you don't have the means or if you can't donate at this time, spread the word, like tell someone about it, tell one friend, tell a family member. And that was kind of like where it all started. We set the campaign to just about three weeks, I think. And we're able to raise the funding in that time period. So scarcity mindset of people being like, oh, I want to help. The time is running out, that sort of thing that I think helped a lot. And since it was like the first round and it was like brand new, people were really excited to share it. So I got really lucky. So the three weeks went by, I reached and slightly exceeded the goal. And again, like it showed me what was going on in the market. It showed me like what I should be ordering and then was able to place the first order. And, you know, a little less than half of that was pre-orders. So that was super helpful to, to get the launch there. But this past year, I've been really interested in getting into active for multiple reasons, but the material first and foremost is really similar to what we use for swim. Swimwear and activewear, both performance products, they both need to work for you. They both serve a very specific purpose, but with active, it's your loungewear. It's what you wear at the house. It's what you wear to the gym. It's what you wear going for walks. It's really like what people wear constantly, especially in LA. So I kind of knew that it was something people wanted. I started testing the market through Instagram again, or like sending out surveys, things like that, to see if this was something that people wanted. Is it overdone? Like, is another activewear brand coming onto the scene overdoing it? That sort of thing. And people were like, no, we need more options. Like, we want reversible. We want this. We want sustainable alternatives as well. So basically, that kind of led me to being like, okay, where are we going to get the money for this? Kickstarter, again, let's try this out. And same thing, like, honestly, going into the second round, I was like, maybe I'll feel like a vet in this. Maybe I'll like really understand how this process works and like how much I'll raise and all of this. Had no idea, like could not forecast. And like, that's the thing is like, everyone can say, oh yeah, I'll support like a hundred percent I'll pledge, but like, you don't really know who's going to go through with that. So it was a little bit of a shot in the dark, but did the same thing. Like, individually reaching out to people. Obviously we have a larger base now than we did in the beginning. Being able to post to like an actual audience versus like a couple hundred of my friends was definitely a lot easier to spread the word, you know, have an email list and things like that now. So was able to set the time frame a little bit longer than last time we did it for a month um, and raise the money just before Christmas. So that was a good little surprise before the end of the year and a good start to the new year. And now we're going into production 
and going to be launching our first activewear collection. Well, congratulations again. Thank that's you. really exciting. And that's yeah. no small feat to raise significant money, essentially yeah. asking people to believe in your vision and your brand. Right. So mm-hmm. I really respect that. To switch gears a little bit, something that you mentioned about active wear, I'd love to talk about more, and it is yeah. functionality. And this concept that people are looking at both activewear and swim as performance products. Mm -hmm. These are products that need to stand the test of time and be there for people while they are working out, living their lives, lounging, whatever it may be. Something that really struck me about the Patagonia story and the Patagonia vision Mm -hmm. was this concept of functionality. Like at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, all of these products are built to last and built to perform. Yeah. And there was a whole subsection on functionality actually that yes. I tabbed and I thought was so interesting. A lot of this book was really yeah. a manual of like how to I run exactly where it was. a business. Yeah. But there was something about functionality and functional considerations. What is this shirt for? Hot, tropical, hot, dry, etc. Like what kind of drape does that require, etc. Like the yeah. little questions that go into building a single product that you expect people to own for years is kind of crazy. So I was wondering if there was anything in the functionality section of this book that really struck you or something that you took away as an interesting facet. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this, I know the exact same. I just turned to the page that you're on because I remembered it, but every question that they ask, and again, maybe I should have read this book like before I launched this company, but it all fits really well with the tiller ethos. And like, I think a lot of fashion brands or even like swimwear brands, activewear brands, they talk about the sustainability aspect. They talk about like what the materials are, that sort of thing. But one thing that has come to mind for me a lot in this process is not only the functionality, but the versatility of things. And he talks about that as well in this. I was like, Uh, like you could have been reading this but one thing about sustainability that people don't touch on that much is that if a piece is functional and it's durable it's versatile you can wear it for multiple reasons then you don't have to buy another product so it's basically cutting back on overconsumption in other areas without even realizing it and I know people are quick to say like oh you know but like nylon or like these synthetic materials even if they're made of recycled materials like if they go into a landfill, they're not going to break down. They're adding to waste, this and that. But the reason why these performance fabrics were engineered in the first place was to make less waste, was to make it so that you're not ripping holes in your cotton leggings or whatever that is, or it's not one season that you're wearing a swimsuit and it's like shredded to pieces from the chlorine and the sand and whatever else that you're getting involved with. So there is an aspect that's like, yeah, the materials have to be sustainable. And that's one thing that obviously is one of our pillars, but it also has to do the work or else what's the point? You're just going to be throwing the non-sustainable material or the sustainable material into the garbage or like giving it away. And then it, you know, ends up being burned or into the garbage anyway. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you tabbed that because that's something that I was like, yeah, duh, like that totally makes sense. What you mentioned about nylon being a really great performance fabric because it's just performing quote like Mm -hmm. long-term and it's durable reminds me a lot of this conversation around plastic. And I feel like I have this conversation every once in a while in my personal life when Mm -hmm. people are like, well, if we don't have plastic, what can we use? 
And at the end of the day, plastic is as popular as it is because it's actually really good at what it does. It's really durable. It is inexpensive and it's lightweight and it's flexible. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason that it became as popular in our mainstream consumption as it is. hundred percent. So mm-hmm. until we have something that is equally inexpensive, flexible, yeah. uh, easy to produce, et cetera, right. we can't truly change the way that we consume plastic. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I'll touch on that before you move on. But I think another thing is that people don't holistically look at like how it's consumed. So you see like, you know, a plastic shopping bag. Oh no, like waste. But that shopping bag probably could be used multiple times. It could be used for multiple reasons, food that's packaged in plastic. It's going to last longer. So you're not going to like be throwing away all this food waste because it's covered in something that is protecting it. So there's like, obviously the evil part of that is that people are irresponsible with the way that they dispose of things, the way that they use things. They see something plastic and are like, okay, that's single use throwing it in the bin after that. But what they're not putting together is like so much of it is the receiving end is like the reason why plastic is overproduced and overused and discarded is because there's no awareness around, okay, you could be using these for other things. Now they're coming out with like the cellulose plastics, like the plant-based plastics, things like that, which are great. I'm like a huge proponent for those, but before that even can happen, like before that innovation can like go through that whole like technological process, you need to be teaching these consumers what they can be doing with these different products that are maybe inherently unsustainable. Yes. But it's also the way that it goes through its whole cycle of life. Absolutely. Thinking about the life cycle brought me to think of something else mentioned in this book. And when I think of Patagonia, Something that really stands out and what they're such a golden child of is Mm -hmm. this lifetime guarantee and this ability to always bring something into the store and get it repaired. And Patagonia makes such a big stance on repairability and Mm -hmm. long-term durability of their products. And when I think about brands that offer lifetime warranties, I trust that that's a product that they believe is supposed to last that long. So I'm like, this must be a really well-made product. Mm-hmm. And there's something about this culture of repair that I think in the sustainable fashion movement has started to really discuss repair more openly and more frequently, mm-hmm. but there's something about building repair into your business model. I don't know. There's something about it that just doesn't really make sense because yeah. if you're a business, you should want to sell as yeah. many of a particular product as possible, as opposed to right. encouraging people to repair something and use it their whole life. So there's this back and forth with this Patagonia business model throughout this manual that I was just so just surprised by. I was like, there's so many things about this that don't really sound like good business practices, but it's somehow managed to make them the biggest business in the world. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, like going back to all of the principles of when they were starting, when they were really small, they never wanted to grow into a big corporation. They were kind of like, if it happens, it happens. Like, we'll see. And everything that they've done from the beginning is in the benefit of the environment and the product that they're serving versus like serving the consumer, serving the market, serving, you know, their stakeholders, whoever it is. So the repair thing is interesting because like, I think of like LLB too, like does like the lifetime warranty, like brands like that. They're also heritage brands. And like Patagonia has turned into a heritage brand, like through the years, obviously, but it makes it so that you're like spreading the word. People will want that product. 
you know, you might need to go in and get something repaired and you're not buying something that new. But when you're, you know, seeing the other products that they offer, you're like, oh, this jacket really held up over time. I just had to get it repaired after 10 years. Then you're more inclined to buy the pants or like whatever the the matching thing is or whatever you might need. But it also kind of shows that the products are there to serve you as a consumer. You're not just like buying products to buy product. That was the core of their business. And I know they said that at some point in the book also is if someone else uses this for a different purpose, that's great. But the way that the product is developed will be serving whatever that like core consumer is. If it's a ski jacket, we will like make the fit. We'll make the materials, everything tailored to a skier versus like you want like a warm winter jacket and you see that ski jacket and you buy it. That's great, but they're not trying to serve you. So it's like this weird back and forth there, but it's also a trust aspect too, of being able to say, we're not trying to like scam you out of your money. Like we know that you want to have this product last a lifetime and we'll help you do that. But again, that makes you want to buy the other products from them as well versus like throwing away your money on another brand. There's this level of trust between the brand and the consumer that is so admirable. And I feel like very much an outlier in the consumer brand space. And something you mentioned around having this core consumer that they're serving, I think is so important to remember in the story of Patagonia because the book, this manual, this handbook really opened up with this history of the founder and his family and his friends and how this was a brand of carabiners. And he was just like, I need a better carabiner. I need better climbing equipment, et cetera. I need to tell my friends to stop breaking into the rock as they, I'm not a climber. So I'm like, like, you (laughs) know, I know I'm not a climber, but when he's talking about like, we need to respect the environment if we're continuing to create these recreational spaces and push Mm -hmm. ourselves. And I want to be the brand that I'm looking for in the space. And that's really admirable. I feel like we're hearing that more and more from entrepreneurs of, I started this brand because I wanted it in the space, Yeah, but that also continues to be 60 plus years later, the story that they're leading with. We are serving our own selfish desires to be like outdoor recreational uh, users of the environment. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. A lot of us take pride on being the kind of people that would drop everything to help someone out. We're going to go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often is it that we are giving ourselves that same great treatment? Over the last year especially, I have taken really serious, conscious steps to invest in myself and better that relationship that I have with myself. It's going to Pilates, it is taking walks, it is self-care, it is taking time out of my day to just be present, and it is also online therapy. I feel like BetterHelp is a great way to start thinking about online therapy because it is so accessible, it is very affordable compared to in-person options, and you have so many specialists to choose from, and many of those specialties may not be available in your area. So it feels like a one-stop shop for accessible, personal online therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with a therapist. You do not have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, and there is never an awkward waiting room like there would be at a traditional therapy office. Again, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. 
Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and EcoChic listeners. Get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash EcoChic. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash EcoChic. On the topic of self-care, I love skincare. I spend a lot of time trying out skincare products, and I am always looking for brands with clean, simple ingredients that actually work and deliver on their promises. There's a lot out there, but let me tell you specifically about Osea. Osea has been making clean and effective skincare products for over 25 years. They have award-winning cleansers, serums, face moisturizers, and they're known for creating really amazing body care products like their famous body oil. Let me tell you about how I love this body oil, truly. There is something so luxurious about a body oil, putting it on after a bath, moisturizing yourself. Imagine yourself in like a big, great fluffy robe, a lemon water. There is something fabulous about using a body oil. And I was really looking for one that wasn't sticky, that didn't have any weird smells, that wasn't slick. It was a body oil that was truly moisturizing and effectively nourishing my skin. And that's when I came across specifically this Osea body oil. Since 1996, Osea has been creating clean, vegan, cruelty-free products, safe for the skin, safe for your planet. And if you're interested in taking your skincare, not just from your face, but all over your body, let me also tell you about this body butter that they just released. You don't want to sleep on this product. It will moisturize your skin for up to 72 hours. It's truly amazing. The texture is so rich. It feels so good. And I feel like it transforms kind of crepey skin without being sticky either. That's my big thing with skincare and body care. It cannot be sticky and it cannot make me feel like I need to take a shower and rinse off after I use it. Especially if you're in a winter climate, I feel like finding the right body skincare is difficult. And for me, these products have really delivered. Again, this body oil, out of bounds. The body butter, delicious. Find your new favorite skincare at oseamalibu.com and get a special discount just for our listeners. You can get 10% off your first order with promo code ECOCHIC at oseamalibu.com, O-S-E-A, malibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and orders over $50 get free shipping. I'm sure you'll find something you love and I'll link it in the show notes. Now back to the show. The reason they started, the reason why they wanted to make better products, et cetera, like they are all environmental centric. Like they were like him talking about the versatility aspect where he was like, if one product can serve like 15 uses, then you don't have to carry as much of them out and those kinds of things. So it's funny when like you now see like finance bros, like wearing like the vest and like that's the whole like Patagonia thing and whatever, because it's like that could not be farther from the core consumer that they were trying to serve in the beginning. But it's interesting what you say about like, First of all, saying the 60 year thing, I was like, I didn't even think about how long they've been like going 50 years. So thinking about that and how they've been able to sustain like growth, whether it's small or large over that time period, while also like maintaining these values, it's like a huge inspiration for me with Tiller, just because that's one thing that I think about pretty regularly. I'm like, do I need to be adding these products into the marketplace? Do they serve a purpose? Do they serve something that doesn't exist? Is it a better alternative? Those kinds of things. And I usually come back to the fact that it's like, yes, they're sustainably and ethically made. It makes sense that people would want an alternative at a reasonable price point, that sort of thing. 
And like, it's more about the changing the space, the alternatives, and then like the education around it of eventually most people will hopefully start choosing the sustainable ethical options or the other routes of, again, repairing what you have, wearing what you have, buying secondhand, all of those other options too. So seeing that this has worked for them, they've been like, no, no, we're not trying to grow. Like we're just trying to stay afloat. And the growth came naturally is just such a crazy concept to think about. And even at some parts of the book where they're like, yep, we had a horrible quarter. Like we launched this product. It was blah, blah, blah. But what they come back to with like, oh, the quarter was horrible because we created a product that was not up to our standards and it didn't sell. It's not like, oh, we had a horrible quarter because we didn't hit our goals. It's not like we tried to make this amount of money and we didn't reach it in sales. It's, oh, we know that we didn't reach our sales, normal numbers, whatever quarter over quarter, because what we made was not up to our consumer standards. So it's like, okay, cool. So like they have their bad days, but their bad days, it's because they were not living up to like their mission, which is just a crazy concept. I love that you pointed that out because there's something about the finances of Patagonia that is fascinating. Yeah, there is this like, yeah, there's this like narrative of we're not here to make money. Yes, we're a corporation Mm -hmm. by accident. And you can see it even in the advertisements that they do. Like they put a lot of money Mm -hmm. into election season. They put a lot of money also into environmental campaigns, especially during the Trump administration. I remember during the sales of some public monument lands, Patagonia put a lot of money into advocacy around public lands and how they are managed and what does it mean to sell off quote unquote public land for resource extraction. So they have so much outdoor education that that they put their money in. They have so much Mm -hmm. of their political leanings, I suppose, inherently like part of their marketing, because at the end of the day, they're still recognizing this core consumer and saying the person that we are Mm -hmm. serving is someone who not only cares about the outdoors, but also cares about democracy and also cares about the long-term well-being of environmental resources. Yeah. There's a really interesting way that they clearly allot their money. Yeah. As a corporation. I mean, that's the thing it kind of goes back to is Chouinard being like, I'm not a business person and I'm not a businessman. And then like, at some point he's like, well, I am doing business. So I'm now a businessman. Like he like had this shift where he was like, yeah, we're just making stuff and selling it. And then he was like, no, no, I'm building this business and this brand. But the goal, like exactly what you're saying is to be able to take this money and put it back for good causes, the education portion and everything around the actual products, serving the consumers. But like the reason why they want that to do well is not to profit him or profit the company as a whole or the investors or whoever. It's to give back. Conservancy and like activism is so much of what they put that money into. So it's like, yeah, you're supporting like the full cycle. And I mean, now that's a lot more common. There's a lot of give back models, you know, with a bunch of brands that are popular today. So it's not like confusing, but I think I can imagine that back in like the 80s or the 70s, people are like, so you don't want to be like a capitalistic giant company, like you're giving all this money away, like, okay, that's cool. And like, I mean, you can say that about tech companies too, and tech CEOs, like, eventually, they give most of their money away, they wait till it like compounds for their whole life, they wait till the business is huge, whatever to be doing that. And like, it's just these little things along the way that he was investing in that 
you were like, okay, he was really just being a good person from the start. And a lot of people like have issue with like the campaigns that are like, don't buy this jacket. And like, it's a full ad space that they're buying of a jacket that people will see and be like, oh, I kind of want to buy that jacket. I don't know how often they do it, but it's like usually around Black Friday. And people are like, okay, so is it like facetious? Like, what is this whole deal? Like, are you trying to sell the jacket? Are you not trying to sell the jacket? And it's basically like these full articles where it's like explaining how to repair your jacket. Oh, we do repairs in store. Like if you, you know, want to buy secondhand, we have worn wear. Like it's like all of these different like options where it still is, you know, feeding into the company. You're still engaging with the company, but they're saying don't buy this jacket. So I don't know. It it just goes back and forth. And I think people get confused about it. But with any people that have an actually good mission and a good, I guess, goal overall, there's going to be like some critic that, yeah, you go back and forth being like, should you be supporting these big brands? Like, like, yeah, if you're going to support any brand, you might as well be supporting these brands, you know? There's something about the business model of Patagonia that is almost too good to be true. Like it is such a pure story of We were really just climbers who needed better equipment. (laughs) We hired our friends who just took a lot of time off because they were constantly going on trips and we accidentally became this major corporation. And there's something about the story that is just so pure Mm -hmm. that I don't want to believe it. Even after reading this book. (laughs) I know everyone's a skeptic. Seriously. Of course. Of course. This is a business that's encouraging you to keep their products for 20, 30 plus years, repair it, pass it down to your kids. Don't actually shop on Black Friday. Pour your extra marketing money into protecting public lands and advocating for democracy. This is way too good to be true. Like I I really have a hard time almost now that we're talking about it, believing that this is as pure of a story as it is because this manual read so positive. I was like, this is brilliant. Yes. Okay. That's what I was agreeing with too. It like almost like felt fake. And I totally agree with like you're saying pure and like too good to be true. Because the jumps were so crazy in the beginning. Like they'd be like, yeah, we're just like welding these carabiners. Then all of a sudden they're like, we hired our first 10 employees, but that takes money. Like how many carabiners were you selling? Like they were like, oh yeah, we were just like trying to be affordable and blah, blah. Oh, we get our office space. And I'm just like, personally, as an entrepreneur and as like going through this process right now, I'm like, all of these things cost money. Like I like them printing their catalogs and like all these things. And they're saying like, yeah, you know, we're just like tossing around a couple of pieces of metal. Give me a little bit more detail. Like I need to know like how long did it take? Like it sounded like it was literally within like two years that they like had 10 employees. I know it was longer than that, but crazy in the beginning. I am so glad you said that because I was reading it and I was like, what did I miss? He's like, yep, I was climbing. I saw a woman yelling. We got married and we moved into the apartment above the store. And I was like, first of all, when did you get a store? Like there's so much to unpack in this historical portion that is so downplayed. I was like, yeah, first the catalog thing also got me. I was like, when did you start printing catalogs and getting tens of thousands of orders that you had to hire your friends to be metal workers? And that's my issue with like all of these like brand building, like podcasts and like people talking about their stories and stuff. Like they make it seem like it's like jumping overnight. Me being in the current position of like, okay, what are we doing? What's this path? Like, I want to know the details. Tell me how. I completely agree. I was just like, these jumps are crazy. I was mentioning to you earlier, there was also a very interesting 
kind of political narrative around other big businesses, corporations. There's a section towards the end around crude oil and how Mm -hmm. artificially inexpensive oil is in this country because of subsidies. And there's also a portion around borrowing from other disciplines that I really liked and I thought was interesting on how to run your business and like very core business philosophies of showing up for your consumer, being on time, planning well, et cetera. And the line that really got me was around McDonald's page 119 towards the bottom. We should borrow and adapt ideas, even from unlikely sources. McDonald's is as far from Patagonia as you can get in its image and many of its values. Better respect one thing it does. No one at McDonald's ever tells a customer, sorry, we're out of iceberg lettuce today. It successfully organizes on-time delivery every day of the week. And I think Patagonia could learn a lesson from McDonald's and the symbiotic relationship it enjoys with its suppliers. Mm. I was so wildly not expecting that. But it also <laughs> got me thinking a lot about this landscape that we're living in of learning yeah. from other people and the inherent respect that you can have for someone, even if they are different from you. And yeah. in the business world, like how that plays out at a large scale. Right. I just thought it was really interesting. Like this concept that you don't have to be in the same business as someone to learn from them. You don't have to yeah. be in the same space to borrow ideas. And I just thought it was like a really humble, pure philosophy around growing your business and making yourself better. And I think that it speaks to like, not only businesses being successful, but people also. And one thing that we're kind of like losing, especially with this like really just volatile political and just general world that we're in right now, but is being like able to hear both sides and being able to like cross the aisle kind of thing, because no matter if you disagree or agree with someone, there's always going to be something that you can take away. Like whether it's like learning, like, no, yeah, I truly do disagree with that. And here are the reasons why, or being like, you know what? They're not all that wrong about that. Like there are some things that we can learn from that. And one thing about like our current climate being so volatile and just aggressive, I don't know. And just being like super polarized is that People like can't hear others out. And if you like identify as a certain political background or just like ideals about like big topics, it's almost like you don't want to compromise because it makes you look compromised in your opinion where I kind of think it's opposite bad about this too, especially like if it's like a heated debate and you like really want to hit home whatever point you're trying to make. But if you are hearing out people and like kind of just being like chill about it, everyone kind of chills out, if that makes sense. So like being able to make that comparison and those two businesses could not be more different, being able to borrow ideas from people who are not maybe in the exact alignment as you is such a skill I think is overlooked. And one thing that like, as our society polarizes more and more is going to be hard because people are going to be like, my way or the highway, we're not friends anymore. And then you're losing people that are possibly going to be able to contribute good ideas or good philosophies towards your way of life. So I totally agree that it's interesting that it's in here, but I think it's smart because it shows that it's like, we're not this crazy far left, you know, environmental justice company. Like we are also running a business. We're supporting families, we're supporting individuals, whatever else that they talk about in the book and making sure that they are open to different ideas and different ways to be able to support it. Cause at the end of the day, yes, it comes down to the environment. Yes. It comes down to the planet, but like so much of it is what comes down to the people too. And I know he said something that contradicts that as well earlier in the book, he was saying like, who are we supposed to be devoted to? Is it the stakeholders? Is it the product? Is it the consumer? Is it the investors, whatever. 
And he was like, it's no one unless the environment is saved or something like that. So that's another thing where it's like, well, no, you are serving the people too. Like your whole book is about that too. But I see what he's saying of like, it doesn't matter. Like the core of the business is like making sure we do everything environmentally and ethically. What I think about on a regular basis is create our products sustainably. We use materials that are like engineered to be more sustainable. But when it comes down to it, like what is one of the more important parts about sustainability to me is the people and like making sure that people are treated well through all the different processes, because it doesn't matter if you're using recycled plastic, water bottle, whatever, if there's like someone like in a sweatshop making your products, because they're not being able to benefit from, you know, this one act that you're doing. And it ultimately increases the poverty in that area, increases like all of these like unsustainable practices that people can't afford. It increases the gap and like the accessibility to sustainable products, that sort of thing. So it's interesting because like, I totally agree with him, but I also think about it from the opposite coin a lot of the times. I agree. I'm glad you brought that up because when I think about sustainability in this larger consumer context, I feel like often when I'm talking about, especially sustainable fashion with folks that are not in the space as deeply as you and I may be, Mm -hmm. there is this ethicality argument almost that you need to make. They had some ethical issues. I'm thinking of Mm -hmm. um, Everlane. I'm thinking of Everlane and I can, I'll link an article in the show notes I've shared before. Everlane is an interesting brand because they do really incredible work on the sustainability front. They have a great water recycling system. They have a really impressive commitment to minimizing textile waste, but a a lot of damning ethical conversations that come out of their workforce, Mm -hmm. which is extremely concerning. So I don't know. I haven't picked up on that story in years. Like, I don't know how they're doing now. I really do hope that they're doing better. I remember reading that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a few years since that story broke, but it's really interesting to think about that in this context, because when we're talking about sustainable fashion with folks who are not as deeply involved in the space, again, Mm -hmm. there's this place where you have to say sustainability does not operate in a silo. And it really should not be only about textiles or only about waste or water or recycling water bottles or whatever it is. If there's not a human element to it, it's automatically unsustainable. I agree. Yeah. And I mean, that's like one thing that I think a lot of like the companies that try to greenwash or like the fast fashion companies that have a sustainable collection or something like that, brainwashing people to think like, oh yeah, this is more sustainable. And like, Yes, it probably is slightly more sustainable, but the same people making it, it's the same processes they're going through. It's the same quantities that they're delivering. It's the same amount that's going into the landfill, et cetera. So, you know, thinking about the Everlane example, it's like, again, I haven't checked in on that in a long time as well, but I remember that coming out and they're one of my favorite brands. So I was like, that's sad. (laughs) Like another one bites the dust versus being like their company, they're figuring it out. Like they will write their wrongs if this is something that is super important to them. I don't know if that's something we should like look up and like read about now, but that's a good example of like, when we're talking about, oh, Patagonia is a little too good to be true. How are they doing this? Like this kind of doesn't make sense. They also didn't have the eyeballs that, Everlane does in terms of the sustainability aspect. Like the media also can spin different things as well. But at the same time, Everlane's goal is growth. You know, I think they're started in San Francisco, like kind of like background, venture funded, that sort of thing. So, like, 
yes, who they are serving is the consumer. They make great products. They're affordable. They're whatever. They're sustainably made. But at the end of the day, you can't go up to the Everland CEO and say that they're not trying to make money. And I think that's one thing that like Chunard can like go to his grave with basically is like, yeah, like the money is good, but like we're doing these things because of it. And we never intended to grow in that way. You know what I'm saying? So, and like, that's one thing that I struggle with as well is like, obviously I want to grow the business, but I would like to know what the cap is of like, when it starts having diminishing returns, when are we like going to be leveling out where the point of this brand is not helping anymore? Like that sort of thing and figuring it out. And like, that's like one sustainability, like analysis, I guess, or like something that probably doesn't exist that much for emerging brands is understanding like what impact can you have? How much money do you need to do that over what period of time? And at what point should you just like remain flat or like pivot to a different business or whatever? But like, basically being able to like create a business in order to like not have a business or something like getting to a point where you like don't need to have it anymore. That sort of thing is like an interesting comparison, I think with like brands that are starting now versus like them starting in the seventies. That's an interesting angle of it because it's also like, in a sense, you don't want to work yourself out of a job if you're starting a business. Yeah. But then on the flip side, you also want to grow, you want to maintain Mm -hmm profits. And something you touched on earlier around greenwashing was really interesting. When we are selling greenwashed collections or sustainable capsule collections, quote unquote, from a fast fashion brand, and you're flooding the market with these greenwashing campaigns, you get a consumer that believes they can buy their way into sustainability. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that person is recognizing it, if you are choosing a sustainable brand from the start, You shouldn't have to continue making those choices because you've invested in a brand, you've invested in a product that's repairable, durable, versatile, all those things we talked about in the beginning, and you shouldn't have to keep looking for things in the market. So when does the market cap out? Like, when do you say we have exactly what we need? Yeah. And I feel like that's more of like a landscape question. It's not even necessarily about an individual mindset thing. Yeah. And a mindset thing. And I think like thinking about that, I also think of there's a lot of like debate about how fast fashion is more accessible to lower income people to be able to feel confident to have clothes that are on trend or blah, blah, blah. But like, I think about those cycles and, you know, people like justifying shopping at Shein or like something that's like really low quality, really, really low prices. And then thinking about how it's like, it really is a cycle. It's not a linear thing. It's not like, oh, I stopped shopping at Shein and then I'm like going to go buy something expensive. It's the fact that you have to be like, why am I buying from Shein? You probably are still ordering $50, $100 worth of clothes. It might be more clothes, but how long are those pieces going to last you? When is the next time that you have to go shop at Shein to like replace these clothes? What is the timelessness aspect of what the pieces you're buying are? Those different things that I think again, is another lack of education about sustainability for everyone, not just low income people or, you know, people who are not familiar with the space. It's like people who think that they're sustainable warriors too. Like there's such a misconception about it too, because what we were saying about the marketing of Patagonia, like there still is marketing, like there's, they still have put their brand out there, but like at what rate do they need to do that in order to like sustain the business while also doing good for the planet, whatever. But the reason why I say it's a cycle is because you need to like 
start with the mindset of like, oh, I'm going to invest in this piece and understanding over the duration of these two years, I'll probably spend the same amount. The reason why people shop at these fast fashion companies is because they get variety and they're like, oh, well, I could just wear that once or twice, get the use out of it. And then I have all these other pieces that I also purchased for less expensive. But that's also like feeding into the problem of why do you need to wear something new every day? Or like why every month do you need a new wardrobe? I agree. You need to have some experience with the downsides before you Mm -hmm. make the move into sustainable fashion. Yeah. Kathleen, to wrap our conversation today, I know we covered a lot. So much. (laughs) How would you rate Let My People Go Surfing out of five? Oh, out of five. You know, I think for the concepts and what we learned and took away, five. For the actual like read and applicability, maybe like a four, four and a half. Um, but generally, I think it's super applicable for my life as a consumer and also my business. So I'm really glad that we read it and I'm glad that we talked about it. And now I have to finish the last few pages. So <laughs> I feel like I would probably rate it a four solid because I really yeah. enjoyed reading it, but it was clearly not meant to be read cover to cover. Like it was written right. as a manual. It is a manual. Yeah. So exactly. yeah. For readability, the pictures were fabulous. Like the pictures were Loved. so funny. So the one yeah. of those two people throwing their child through rocks <laughs> at Joshua tree. And the caption was like <laughs> pilot test for X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, in yeah. what world? It was, so it, it was just so good. It was like yeah. such a specific person that this book is clearly catering to. Mm-hmm. It is so on brand clearly with Patagonia and I loved reading it but again clearly not written cover to cover a hundred percent I agree with your rating I hope you enjoyed today's book club conversation with Kathleen Shepard of Tiller Swim on let my people go surfing the education of a reluctant businessman by Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia if you stuck around this long you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can rate on Spotify now. You can subscribe and follow the show and keep up with us every single week. Find me on social if you want to connect at EcoChic Podcast. And I hope you have a really fabulous day. Thanks for hanging out, and I'll talk to you soon. Oh,